The date is the 16th of December 2020 and our guest today is Jennifer Jarrett, Professor of Government at Dalton's College. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Sure, happy to be here. Excellent. So before we get started, we normally ask that our guests just briefly introduce themselves and perhaps any areas of research that they're working on right now, just for the benefit of our listeners. Sure. My name is Jennifer Jarrett. I'm a faculty member in the government department at Dartmouth. Um, I study various topics in political psychology, so I'm particularly interested in the study of political knowledge, um, you know, best practices on how to measure public opinion, and also the persuasive effects of political rhetoric. And so just to start the conversation, um, could you flesh out a little bit what exactly you mean by political psychology and in particular political communication? Sure, political psychology is um, sort of broadly speaking, it's the application of what we know about human psychology to the study of politics. So people who work under the umbrella of political psychology draw from many different areas of the cognate field. So they might draw upon social psychology, cognitive psychology, neuroscience, um, with the aim of understanding the behavior of political elites and ordinary people. And so my research in the class that I teach at Dartmouth tends to focus on the mass public. So applying political psychology to understand the behavior of citizens and ordinary people as opposed to elites. But um, it's also a very fruitful framework for understanding the behavior of political actors. And so there's, there's actually a, um, a different class offered in our department that has that kind of focus. Stemming off of what you just said, Professor Jarrett, um, and your description of political psychology. Um, I was doing a little research into you, and so I, I read the intro to uh, How Words Do the Work of Politics, and I noticed that um, a lot of your work is premised on Jonathan, or uh, maybe not premised, um, but makes use of Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory. So I was wondering if you just um, explain a little bit about that for our listeners who haven't taken Professor Whelan's um, Pub Paul Five. <laughs> Sure. So this was um, this has become a very uh, you know moral foundations theory was a framework that was designed to uh, help us understand um, the way people think about moral issues and, and moral reasoning. And so it's a um, you know a framework in it. And the, the the contention is is that or all moral reasoning can be sort of categorized according to these five different foundations and. So there's a long, you know, this, this theory had a particular development in psychology and it became relevant in political science um, because it was, there was, you know, the, the, the question was whether this framework could help us understand reliable and enduring differences across, between Republicans and Democrats. And so the finding that's received the most attention and, and a very, and, and the, you know, the claim that's very provocative is that liberals and conservatives endorse different foundations. And so the, you know, the most widely cited finding is, is, is the one that notes that liberals or, or Democrats tend to um, draw primarily upon the dimensions of harm and fairness, which are two of the five moral foundations, whereas conservatives or Republicans tend to in, endorse all five foundations more or less equally. And so that would also include um, the authority dimension, the sanctity dimension, and the loyalty dimension. And so, you know, the idea is that we see these uh, very um, entrenched differences in, in viewpoints between partisans because they 
They just are approaching the same issue through different moral lenses. And so for Haidt, he, he talks about um, how a lot of this is innate and that it might be precognitive and very intuitive and, and these, these moral intuitions might arise um, without people even being aware of them. And I and my collaborator became interested in the degree to which the political context might prime these foundations. And so that's where my interest in political rhetoric came. It wasn't so much the innate part of the argument, but, but the extent to which strategic political actors could get people to think about different political issues through these moral lenses. Um, and and, and you know, the idea is that elites are doing this for very strategic reasons, because they want to win policy debates and sway public opinion. And so that was the motivation for that piece. It was really to situate moral foundations theory in a uh, more political context. That was a really explanation. Thank you, Professor Jarrett. I'd also just like to note um, that recently on one of um, with Jonathan Haidt's theory, there is now a sixth flavor or, or foundation, which is the liberty principle for any of our um, classical liberal or libertarian listeners out there. But it basically functions the same way and you know, same kind of thought process that it's a precognitive bias, which is one I hold actually, <laughs> that doesn't place people who hold it in the Republican or Democrat, progressive conservative camp, but in this kind of third um, option, but, but same deal. And I was wondering, because um, you, you brought up the word precognitive, in your research, which perhaps um, doesn't touch exactly on this because you're more concerned with the rhetoric, um, I was wondering if you believe or, or have observed that most like political arguments that are made, are, do you believe that they're just made post hoc and simply serve to validate um, the people or elites moral intuitions or moral foundations um, as Jonathan Haidt seems to suggest? I think um, it depends. So it, it's, is it all, um, are people's rationales for their opinions simply post hoc um, rationalizations? I think that's your question. Um, I mean, that might be some of it, but I, I think it really depends on a person's motives in a particular situation. And so this is where there's a bit of a, I think, um, political scientists or people who study public opinion formation you know, might, might pay more attention to contextual features. And so you can imagine different situations or different decision-making contexts where people may have different goals or processing motives. So somebody in a, in a particular context might become um, acutely concerned with accuracy. They really want to make the right decision, perhaps because of the stakes involved or whatever the case may be. In that case, I would think that um, they would process information differently as opposed to a situation where they have a more directional motive. Maybe their entire goal is to affirm their moral values. And so I, I don't think that, that you know, every opinion or argument that a person utters is simply a post hoc rationalization. Um, it certainly may, may be the case in, in particular situations, but I think political psychologists and public opinion scholars are really becoming much more attuned to trying to understand what is motivating people in particular situations. Are they motivated by non-directional goals, such as being accurate or correct, or are they being driven more by a, a directional motive, such as affirming existing values, or maybe um, affirming their affinity to an important identity, such as a political party.
I'd like to move on to a different area of your research, um, namely political knowledge measures, which I believe you mentioned before. So just for our audience, um, what exactly are political knowledge measures? Why are they important? And um, specifically, how has the availability of information online impacted the efficacy of these different measures? Sure. Um, political knowledge and the study of political knowledge has a, a very long history in political science. And so, um, you know, historically, we've thought that um, political knowledge measures are, are very useful at capturing a person's latent political sophistication. All right. And so the, so the, the political knowledge measures or questions themselves are very simple. They, they typically ask people topics and, and the questions have objective right or wrong answers. So examples might be who is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court or which political party controls the House of Representatives. There's enormous variety in the topics of these questions. Um, and the, the, the specific facts that we ask about themselves are not all that important. What we think is that people who are able to, to, to give correct answers to these questions, who, are, who have this information stored in memory, um, are different than people who don't. And, so, and that's because we think that these questions tell us something about a person's um, latent cognitive and intellectual engagement with the political world. And so somebody who knows these facts, who can recall them and give the correct answers to questions like this, um, we think that they consume a lot of information from the political world and they also understand it and they can integrate it with what they already know. And so that's what the measures are. Um, these are the kinds of questions that a public opinion scholar might include in a survey if they want to measure political sophistication. Um, and so we, we think this characteristic is important because people who are more politically sophisticated uh, have a richer network of political information stored in memory and they behave differently in the political world in any number of ways. Uh, they're more tolerant, they're more participatory, they're more likely to cite evidence in political discussions. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of benefits to political knowledge, a lot of normatively desirable behaviors that are associated with having political knowledge. I should note that there's also a dark side to this in the sense that people who have these this level of sophistication also can be very good at counter-arguing information that, that um, is counter-attitudinal, that goes against their existing viewpoints. And so it's not just that political sophistication is, is, a, is, is, always, is, is always desirable and that it only has positive effects. I think we're becoming increasingly attuned to the fact that it can have this dark side as well. And so it's, you know, the point is that political knowledge um, and, and sophistication is a very rich concept. It's important. It, it dramatically affects the way people think and behave in the political world. And so that means how we measure it is really important. And for many years, when we collected public opinion data and surveys, we did that over the telephone or in face-to-face -face interviews. These days, a more common approach is to execute surveys over the internet. And when you do that, you can imagine that a person answering opinion questions over a survey that's administered online can research the answers. So if they can't remember who the chief justice is, they can open up another, another tab in their browser and they can quickly Google that information. And so um, I've conducted some research that shows, um, first of all, that this happens. 
uh, that, that this is a common practice and the main way we discern that is we notice that there's a global increase in levels of political knowledge among people who take surveys online compared to people who are taking them in some other setting where you don't have that opportunity. Um, and I've, then I've done some other work that shows that the properties of these measures um, are weakened considerably. And so um, knowledge that people seek out on the internet, it just functions differently than knowledge that's stored in memory. It doesn't mean that it's not valuable for a person to be able to look up information because that's certainly the case, but people who can go out and find information, they don't have the same kind of sophistication that people who have that information stored in memory. And so the consequences of found knowledge are different than the consequences of stored knowledge. That's a really interesting point. And I was wondering about how the informal um, methods nowadays, I, I think Twitter, Google, Facebook, um, and they, they become increasingly more dubious um, uh, the, the further you get away from the primary sources and the more opinionated it becomes. Um, how do you think that has affected political discourse and perhaps like bifurcation um, in the country? And kind of follow up question to that. Do you think that there will be less of that under a Biden administration that is perhaps less uh, want to use Twitter to communicate political messages than the um, outgoing regime? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not entirely convinced that, well, I'm sure um, President-elect Biden will use Twitter because it's such a common platform. So many people use it that he would be really missing an opportunity to get his voice out there if he didn't use it at all. Um, he probably won't use it as frequently as President Trump, who seems to rely almost exclusively on it. Um, and so I think maybe the, the, the frequency of, of um, tweeting is going to go down. And I, I suspect, too, the tone. Um, Biden has been in political office for a very long time. He's a much more conventional politician. He's had a much more conventional path. And I think his just demeanor as a politician is, is more conventional in that regard. So I think his messaging and the way he communicates is, is going to follow that same path. Um, I, I think that's just what he's familiar with. And so that's, that's just a more natural form of behavior for him. Um, you know, you can see that he has a very different style of rhetoric already. It's very um, you know, calm and he's making a deliberate attempt to reach out to Republicans. And so I, I think that, you know, not only is this sort of in line, you know, probably feel more natural to him as a way of communication. It's also makes a lot of sense um, to the extent that he can increase his standing with people who didn't vote for him. He will uh, become more popular and presidents have more influence with Congress when they're more popular. And so I, I think it it makes sense for him strategically to tone down the rhetoric and to try to appeal to all kinds of people. Um, we've mentioned rhetoric quite a bit, and it, it obviously goes without saying that emotion is a very important part of politics, and probably you know more so in the last four years in the United States than before. Um, my my question is, um, in the empirical literature, what are the findings surrounding emotion in politics, um, and what can we take away from that? Um, so this is an enormous literature. 
uh, probably you know, difficult to characterize in just a few words. Um, I, I think I'll, I'll mention a, a few things though. I, I, in, an early view in the study of public opinion was that emotion was bad or detrimental, that it, was, um, it made people irrational. And you can even see the seeds of this if you go back and you read the Federalist Papers and you, if, you, if you pay attention to the writings of the, the framers of the, the U.S. Constitution, they thought the only kind of sensible political behavior was that that was based in cognition or rational thought. And so I think there's been a real revolution in terms of how we view emotion and that's been a very, um, probably one of the just most you know, fruitful set of insights that's come as public opinion scholars have drawn upon psychological research. And so, you know, work by psychologists and political psychologists have really altered this early, you know, kind of naive view. Um, we know that emotions are functional in the sense that they serve a coordination role. Um, they trigger a set of responses, whether that be physiological, behavior, um, that enable people to address a situation. And so, you know, we think of emotions as preparing the body for action. And so a very influential body of work shows that discrete, or, you know, by which I mean specific emotions such as anger or anxiety or fear, they carry very specific behavioral tendencies. And so when we, we experience these specific emotions, they signal the appropriate response. And these action tendencies, these behavioral tendencies have real political consequence. So we know, for example, that um, feelings of anxiety often cause people to devote cognitive resources or attention to the source of that anxiety. So people who feel anxious in a political setting will then seek out information. And so that's a, a very dramatic example of emotions not being irrational. They actually help people seek out information. Now, obviously there's probably some sort of tipping point where too much anxiety ceases to be beneficial, um, but it's, just, it's a good example of how um, specific emotions have um, can have very beneficial functions. And so, you know, anger is, is associated with, with action. And so feelings of anger in the political realm can motivate people to get involved politically. And so we think that's good. And we also know that discrete emotions can alter how people process new information. And so this is, they're just, a, you know, um, dozens of, of, of very relevant insights that signal the um, the manner in which emotions are functional for political behavior. Yeah, and to wrap up with one kind of large question that stems off of that and ties back into our earlier conversation about moral foundations theory. Um, I was wondering if you think that given a discrepancy in the response to the coronavirus between uh, the right and the left, conservatives, progressives, whatever labels you want to use, and there's um data on this from Nature, for example, that found that for every one percentage point increase in vote share for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, um, counties exhibited 0.11 percentage points, less physical distancing, and the article goes on. But I also think just most people who are listening to this podcast and are paying attention to the political goings on in this country have seen, you know, right-wing demonstrations against mask orders, forced shutdowns, et cetera. So I don't think anything I'm saying here is too presumptuous. Um, but do you believe that Height's attribution of the authority and sanctity foundations to conservatives is correct, um, given that kind of the uh, appeal to authority 
um, legitimate authority of scientific experts and definitely the, the instantiation of the sanctity principle in more left-wing progressive types being very serious about mask wearing and physical distancing and hand washing. Do you think that he was right to say that it's only conservatives or right-wingers that have that, those foundations? Yeah, that's a great question. This is such a, uh, a fascinating um, set of findings and it's uh, a lot of other related findings about how the reaction to the pandemic has become politicized and with you know, mask wearing seemingly taking on this very um, expressive um, type of um, connotation. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, that's, that's an interesting question. And so the idea is that if conservatives really endorse the authority foundation, then they would be following the authorities and taking the appropriate precautions. I think that's a reasonable interpretation if conservatives in this setting are motivated by affirming moral values. Um, and so it, it may not be that they are being driven by that kind of directional goal if they are instead being motivated by a more identity protective goal, um, one that's more partisan in nature, then that would predict that they are taking very strong cues from the pre President Trump and others who are questioning the value of those sets of behaviors. And so it sort of gets back to this idea that we need to try to really understand what is, what's the motive that's underlying people's behaviors or attitudes. Because it, it doesn't seem to be in line with uh, the moral foundations related to authority or sanctity. It seems to be more um, what, what some people in public opinion call partisan cheerleading. And so what's the expressive form of behavior I need to do to show support for my party? Um, and so that's how I would interpret this very you know, provocative finding. Well, Professor Jarrett, thanks very much for your time. We'll probably end off here. Thank you. I enjoyed talking to you both.